on DAB Plus, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is the place to be for the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Coming up this morning, we're going to be looking into the scourge of shoplifting, which has hit a flashpoint in South London yesterday uh, in a place called Peckham, uh, which is kind of known as the People's Republic of Peckham. Uh, There's a lot of activists down there, a lot of lawlessness as well. uh, But there's a couple of people who run a shop down there who are currently at the centre of a police investigation because they tried to prevent a woman who was leaving their shop with a load of stuff the complicated story which we'll tell you about over the course of this hour. Uh, trying to leave a shop with stuff that she was not entitled to leave with, shall we say, uh, or, or cut to the chase, call it shoplifting. Uh, she's been um, arrested by the police after a scuffle ensued. She uh, was withheld, which she was kind of restrained from leaving the shop uh, because the people in the shop didn't want her to leave with all the stuff that she had stolen. And then somehow uh, it all ended up in a big bum fight with people outside accusing those in the shop who appear to be Asian men uh, being racist against black people. The woman in question happens to be black. Um, All sorts of ridiculous placards were thrown around, calls to shut the shop down racism chants, all, all sorts of stuff going on. It's a typical kind of situation that erupts in these kind of places where sometimes a flashpoint could be the simple thing, a spark that starts a riot. Thankfully, a riot didn't happen. The police arrived and it was calm uh, after a few hours. But a typical example of what is going wrong with this country, the law and order is breaking down. People are doing what they think they can do to get away with it and they don't really care. We'll be talking about that first up this morning, the scourge of lawlessness in this country. 0344 499 1000. We want all your stories because you will have them of people cycling down your road, people stealing things from you, people running into shops and running out of them. We talk about it an awful lot, but this is a particularly bad case. There's video footage of it as well. We'll bring you all of that. We'll also talk about Kim Jong un, who has done what he said he would do, uh, taking a bulletproof train to go and visit Vladimir Putin to sell him some weapons. Uh, making a lot of noises about standing together against the cruel, decadent, awful West. I fear uh, it won't be long before Joe Biden starts referring to the axis of evil again and there we'll all be uh, like we were with George Bush. Who can say? Also, Carol Sikora joins us because there's some terrible news on the cancer front. 36,000 cancer appointments and operations are being cancelled because of striking doctors, which I think is unforgivable. It really is. Also, more bad news on the migrant front as well. Um, Apparently, uh, taking uh, channel migrants to Rwanda is now not going to be happening until at least December, if indeed at all. Uh, We've also got MI5 warning Conservative MPs uh, that some people who want to become MPs might actually be spies. Really? Well, does that bother you? 0344 499 1000. Fish and chips as well on the menu. We'll be talking about that. Much else besides. This is Talk TV. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let's get it on. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Prime Minister's questions a little bit later on as well. I'd almost forgotten about that. Rishi Sunak and uh, Keir Starmer with their weekly sort of dance of uh, the macabre, trying to make points against each other. Uh, Meanwhile, we all sit here and suffer in silence. But Mm. let's try not to suffer in silence. William Clouston is here from the Social Democratic Party. William, very good morning to you. Good to be here. we don't like to suffer in silence, you and I. Um, no, so, so well, we don't, do we? So, and we don't suffer in silence, no. but a lot of people sort of have to. Mm. But imagine if you are a shop owner in this country uh, in 2023, uh, it's September the 13th, and here you are wondering whether today is going to be the day mm. that somebody comes into your shop and either ruins you, mm. ruins the shop, or ends up hurting somebody in quite a bad way. Mm. 
it's it's this uh, epidemic of lawlessness and um, shoplifting is is out of control. Mm. Certain categories of crime, totally crime in, in the big cities are illegal. Yeah. If you look at the cleanup rates for things like bicycle theft, less than one percent. Nothing. Mm. It's it's basically legal. Right. Uh, the shoplifting thing is is it's like a, a post pandemic explosion. If you look at the figures, it may may be to do with data collection that, mm. to some extent, but. The large retailers even are saying that it's so bad that it affects the viability of, of, of major stores. Yeah. Can't Primark. Right. Talking about you know people walking out with goods to the value of £250, mm. just walking out. And it's because the, the basic cause is that the criminal knows that very little will happen. Very little. The criminals are emboldened. They mm. feel able to walk into someone's premises and loot it. Some of the videos uh, looting drinks from, say, the co-op stores yeah. in South London. They're very brazen. Bra- totally brazen. Yeah. And they don't even bother to hide mm. their faces because they know very, very little is going to happen. Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's, so, so it's the ineffectiveness <clears throat> not only of, of the security people there, because mm. the limits of what they are willing to do to put their own lives on the line, because mm. some of them have been stabbed. Mm. Um, the limitations of CCTV, because you can film people doing stuff, mm. but if you don't find them or punish them, they don't care. You've got to find, You've got to punish them. They've, mm. got to, they've got to feel it's a calculation of crime, isn't yeah. it? It's a calculation. Will I get away with it? And obviously this incident in Peckham, I want to talk generally rather than about this particular right. case, but the you know, if you're a, a small shop owner in a local area and you're getting looted or mm. people walk out with goods they haven't paid for, what do you do? You, you might not be trained. You're not trained to apprehend people. Yeah. You haven't received no training. You're just trying to protect your business. Right. And then, of course, it's a spark and there's a sort of intercommunal aspect mm. of conflict here. And I'm very worried about that. When I was uh, younger, when I was a student in Birmingham, I lived in Handsworth the first yeah. year I was there. And uh, I lived there for a year, and then I moved to North Birmingham. But um, in the year that I was there, there was a spark hmm. on Lazelle's Road. A man was arrested, ended up in a an orgy of, of rioting and violence. And sadly, two brothers were burnt alive hmm. in a post office. Right. And that's that. It's always remained with me. Yeah, uh, I senseless was, uh, violence. Senseless violence. Yeah. Tragedy. And I, I, it was my post office. Hmm. I used it. It was very sad. I think you've got to be very careful with this. Make sure it doesn't uh, uh, escalate. And please leave these things to the police. Mm. You know, the police will go through uh, an incident like this. They will. But uh, on the other hand, you know, at the time, and we've got the um, the video footage of two incidents, which we can show you now. One is the initial incident of um, the woman, basically. The story seems to be that she wanted a refund for something that she'd bought. Yeah. They said, we can't give you a refund, but you can have goods to the same value. She then went round the shop and basically grabbed loads and loads of stuff, mm. making out that she... Uh, this is actually the second video. This is mm. her um, trying to leave the shop with loads mm. of stuff, and this is him trying to restrain her. He's been accused, the shop owner, of being a little bit over the top. Mm. But there's an earlier piece of footage where it shows her actually attacking him, mm. where she would appear to be hitting him yeah. with some kind of implement uh, as he tries to restrain her further. Yeah. And so the situation is that he's trying to call the police. The police aren't there. Mm. So you're, you're right to say He's that, in a terrible dilemma, Mike, because yeah. what does he do? Does He he can't let if, her leave if, with the if, stuff, right? Yeah, does he just watch people? Word gets round that you can go to the store and just take things. Yeah. So you can't have that. As I say, I would, I would, I would, people need to be calm. The trouble is in the, the in the era of social media, things can get whipped up very, very quickly, mm. and everyone takes sides, and you yeah. notice on the on the sewer that is Twitter, people have been taking sides, uh, yeah. you know, according to racial uh, allegiance. Well, of course they have. Yeah, it's like claiming that he's, again. he's racist, yeah. he's, he's hands off black women. Can we see the other video? There's a video mm. where she is attacking him, which we haven't seen yet. 
which yeah. there is as well, which is at the beginning. The first instance, here it is here. This is where she basically starts attacking him, you know, and she's hitting him repeatedly, and he's not responding. He's just trying to shield himself from it. Yeah. And but so that's the context as well, which Twitter often misses. It all, And then people clip tweets, yeah. don't they? Clip um, footage to suit their own agenda. Yeah. And then, you you know, you, you end up with a, a, a large protest outside the store, yeah. and it all escalates. Just please, well, suddenly they were producing placards, yeah, and you but go, lead, well, where did the placards come from? Lead to the police. Lead yeah. to the police. The police are the side uh, whether the person was guilty of taking things out right. without uh, asking. They'll decide whether the shop owner acted disproportionately. But poor old shop owners are in a real... But what's he going to do today? Are you going to open the shop and wait for the backlash? Are you going to wait and see? We're mm. going to show you another video now, uh, <clears> which is actually a different shop uh, in a different part of south-east London. Uh, this is in a place called Woolwich, apparently. Mm. And check this out, right? This is a, a sort of mob scene of people coming into a shop, attacking the people that run the shop it's a horrible thing to watch so we would ask you if you're you know uh, of a nervous disposition to look away now but there's people punching each other kicking each other uh, the people in the shop trying to defend themselves meanwhile there are other people just lifting stuff off the shelves and putting it under their jumpers and walking out what, with it. what are we going to become what like, is this what are we I mean, going to become like imagine it, if you're even in a shop with one of your kids or something in the united states uh they're armed shop owners are armed and regularly you'll see people trying to hold shops up and getting mm. shot, and that's the sort of chaos that you've got there. Yeah. Yet in other parts of the world, you know, uh, South Korea, for instance, uh, shops don't even have attendance. Right. It's honesty. Yeah. You know, I've just spent two and a half weeks in, in Orkney on mm. holiday, right. and there are honesty stores all over the island. Right. There's, a, there's a bakery quite close to us. It's just honestly walk in. We buy take stuff and leave the money. Just leave it in the box, right. and that's a high-trust society. Yes. And I worry we're becoming a very low-trust disorderly society. But it's not just about trust, it's about opportunism, isn't it? It's about people who want to have no rules, who don't mm. care. Mm. I mean, these are the very people who, by the way, would be the ones who suffered if it was a survival of the fittest, because they haven't got any money, mm. a lot of them, mm. uh, and they would be the ones that would actually be left destitute on the street. Yeah, and If some, you wanted to go into some kind of Mad Max, you, yeah, know, and, and you know, futuristic world where yeah. only people who could afford to have armoured cars could Might drive on right. the road yeah. and only people who could afford an AK-47, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, that would be the situation. But that's what, that's what some of us worry that we're heading to. You know, yeah. gated communities, disorderly yeah. contract. The public realm is becoming... I mean, it starts literally... You can see it. You can see, when you go into a town or a city, you can see if it's looked after. You can mm. see if it's orderly. Yeah. Uh, you know, the half, I've moaned for years about the fact that half of our towns and cities smell of skunk. Yeah. You know, they it do. used to be Well, like if you that. go down to Peckham, I've driven through Peckham on many occasions. I don't spend yeah. a lot of time down there, but I have been there. Mm. You know, it's quite a vibrant community, mm. um, but it's a very different place at night than it is during the day. Yeah, you know? yeah I bet you. And, and so parts of, you know, lots of our cities are like that, mm. where I would, my daughter, when she was living in London, would, would had friends who lived in Peckham. She would go there, but I would urge her never to spend too much time there at night because getting back from somewhere like that um, is not an easy thing to do. I, I'd have... Family member that lived there briefly mm. in a couple of months heard gunshots. Yeah, you know this is becoming. It's not. A, it's not a rare no. thing anymore. No, and it's not a rare thing to see somebody with a gun. Yeah, and it's certainly not a rare thing to see somebody with a machete. But once, once, once the authorities lose control of the of the public realm, mm. the streets, the shops, when this starts, it's very difficult to see how it doesn't get worse.
Mm. That's the trouble. So, I, you know, law and order is going to be a massive thing at the next election, Mike. Totally. Massive thing. You because know, people... all of it has gone from the beginning yeah. of the arrest process through to yeah. um, the police stations all being shut down, yeah. through to uh, the CPS being not Standard. fit for purpose, right? Yeah. Through to not enough courtroom uh, space. Because Rainbow laces. Loads of courtrooms have yeah. been shut down. Yeah. And that was before they discovered they all had yeah. aerated concrete in them. Yeah. You know, so, you know, people turning up on seven police officers turning up on your door because you made a tweet that they didn't like. That's the crazy That's world we live in. And yet this is this sort of thing's happening. Yeah. And Andy in Blackpool says this. In relation to the Peckham shop incident, people seem to forget every person in this country can use reasonable, proportionate and necessary force under common law to defend themselves. Also, Section 3 of the Criminal Law Act and the Prevention of Crime. Grabbing around the neck can be reasonable. It is a case-by-case basis and the honest held belief of the person using the force if they felt that that was the only way. Only a court can say if the force was reasonable, not the court of public opinion. Well, that's true. Um, but that doesn't solve the immediate problem. And I would imagine that this morning the police are going to be out in force yeah. in Peckham, um, which you might say is another waste of their resources when they well, could I be read, actually tracking proper criminals. I read the pieces, Mike, and you can imagine what the BBC and The Guardian wrote on this. They oh, took yeah. a, ter- a certain angle, which I just don't, I don't, don't think reflected facts. Uh, well, I, they're, not, I, they're not keen on facts in the, no, the BBC. No, they the just Guardian. took such a, a ridiculous angle. What does the guy do? He's not trained. You know, no. say he's not, he's oh, so just trying to protect the shop. That yeah. he's protecting, yeah. right? Simple. Um, William Pluston is here. We're going to talk some more about law and order, but also some more uh, about the migrant crisis, which has also got to do with law and order. Uh, we've also got to talk about the uh, current summit going on between uh, Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin. I mean, make of that what you will. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Quite an unusual event happening as we speak, and that is a summit meeting, which we uh, we uh, sort of propagated a couple of weeks ago. Uh, some people weren't sure if it would happen, but Kim Jong-un, uh, the leader of North Korea, uh, has got himself onto a um, bulletproof train and travelled to meet with Vladimir Putin uh, in Russia, uh, where they're apparently discussing the possibility of selling arms one way or another uh, from North Korea, I think, to Russia. But before we get to that, we've got some pictures we think of it as well, actually, as we speak. Uh, let's talk, shall we, uh, William William Clouston is here, about Labour's new uh, appointment, Shadow Culture and Sports Secretary. Um, who's in the job? Thangham Debonair. Mm. Yeah, Bristol Great West. Name. Bristol West MP. Bristol West MP. Uh, she's not particularly mm. qualified to be... Um, Shadow Culture and Sports Secretary, is she? No, I'm sure she's a nice lady, but it's it's a curious one because it's, it reminded me of the Barbara Castle story in the 60s. I, mean, oh. I was I wasn't around to watch it really, but uh, yeah, she she was a transport secretary that couldn't drive. And yes. everyone made a great big fuss about it. But this is this is quite strange. You want to be sports secretary, effectively, yeah. and you've you've been in Bristol West for the best part of 10 years since uh, 2015. Yes. And it's never occurred to you to go to see Bristol Rovers or Bristol City or right. go to the rugby. Right. You've never, you've doesn't, never this, gone. doesn't this puts in a microcosm, doesn't it, some, mm. some of the problems that our political <clears throat> elites have, which is that they don't really get what everybody else does en masse. No. no. They don't understand. I mean, in a way, Barbara Castle not driving doesn't preclude her from being transport secretary because no. so much of that no. is about public you transport, know, public transport yeah. but also other forms of transportation. And she's probably been in a car. Yeah, so, and she was a towering politician, yeah. one of my favourite Labour I uh, think she was brilliant. Giants. But to have yeah. been so uh, lax in even just going to any kind of sporting really event... Weird. <laughs> really weird. It's just ridiculous. I don't know. I mean, it's it's a strange thing uh, to admit, really. It also is slightly strange. I think Bristol West is up 
up the hill, isn't it? It's Clifton and the. I University. guess it would be. Yeah. So it doesn't. It maybe doesn't uh, cover the the grounds, but it is. It Ashton is startling. Gates and all that. Yeah. Well, it's not a very big city. No, no. It's surprising that you've never had an invitation. Yeah. You'd think the MP would get an invitation, or I don't know friend. whether she was at the England Scotland game last night up well, in Scotland. Couldn't have been. No, um, I mean. But yeah. one of the most fantastic moments of it, because there was a bit of a, there was a bit of you know you and I share a sort of Scottish uh, yes, heritage, yeah. so Scottish. I always support Scotland against England, yeah. um, no matter what happens. Yeah. And of course, uh, as Kevin O'Sullivan said, um, England were magnificent. All four goals were great, <laughs> particularly uh, Harry Maguire's when he stuck it in his own net. Yes. Um, but the only thing that that sort of united the fans mm. was when the cameras panned in on uh, Gianni Infantino yes. from FIFA yes. and everybody just started booing yes re- uh, yes <laughs> the the uh, origin of rectitude yes. goodness all Absolutely. goodness yeah oh and, my god yeah. so let's talk about uh, international <clears throat> matters uh, we've got a situation currently where uh, Kim Jong Un and uh, Vladimir Putin are meeting it would appear that uh, uh, they're kind of trying to form some kind of alliance against the West mm. and the evil, horrible, nasty, you know, mm. hegemony types uh, who, who are trying to do away with both countries. Mm. And um, people said he wouldn't do it. But there he is. You can see him walking down the steps of his bulletproof train mm. uh, to meet up with uh, with Vladimir Putin. I mean, it's all for show, this in a way, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. <clears throat> in theory, it makes sense. The rate of depletion of ordnance, yeah. missiles and uh, weaponry generally, um, Russia's mode of operation in warfare is, is bombardment, basically. Yeah. And uh, they've been throwing everything at it. So they have they had problem. You know, they, they And certainly the Ukra- on the Ukrainian side, it's much more acute because the West has supplied them with uh, not as much. So mm. they have to be very, very careful what they use, yeah. when they use it. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Maybe just a. Uh, it strikes me as probably a PR thing. Uh, is it? Does, does Russia really need North Korean weaponry? How old is the? Weaponry? Well, I mean, according to some people <coughs> who know these things, they do because yeah. they're running through their weaponry at a rate of knots. Yes, yeah, point. It, and, and an awful lot of the Russian um, sort of armory is quite old. Yes, um, much of it, particularly the tanks, mm. um, are. I mean, I can't imagine that, that North Korea's got more modern warfare than the Russians do. I don't think so. Um, but again, it's one of those Russian PR jobs where mm. people will ask the question and nobody really knows for sure the answer. They're meeting apparently in a place called uh, Vostochny, mm. uh, in the Cosmodrome. Space Centre. Uh, yeah. In Russia's Far East. Yeah, I mean, it, it trade, pe- people do trade uh, when, if and only when, they, they both sides are, end up better off. So in theory, I, mean, this, I think it was in the Times they were speculating on a sort of three-way mm. uh, engagement really where... Uh, the North Koreans send, send the Russians mm. ordnance and some military hardware, and the Russians provide nuclear uh, sub technology and satellite technology. And, satellite technology, and then, yeah. and then the, the North Koreans, with the money, with the resources, replace some of their weaponry uh, by the yeah. Chinese, because the Chinese are not keen on uh, going over the top and being completely uh, open in their support for Russia. You know, right. they, they've they've had summits. No, they? because for them, it's all about positioning themselves so that they can do whatever they wish to do without yeah. having to be loyal to one side or the other. Yeah. But what's your policy as a party on, for example, the, the war in Ukraine? Ukraine? Well, we con- condemned it. I mean, Ukraine is a, uh, is a sovereign nation, it's a nation state, and it's, it's fighting a war of, of justification. It's trying to, but uh, we've always taken quite a realistic, probably a more realistic view, not quite as far as Peter Hitchens, but a, a, a realistic view on, on what the prospects mm. were. I mean, I... I one of the things we flagged up in the original press release when the war started was that I thought that Western leaders uh, were all um, making the mistake of underestimating the effect of counter sanctions on the West. Right. Now, if you look, if you value it on in GDP, 
there's no doubt at all that the sanctions have hurt the EU and the West to a greater extent than they hurt the Russian economy. Yeah. The Russian economy, interestingly, last year uh, was much more resilient than people thought. Um, so, yeah, I, I think... And, and then, well, because they're less reliant on things like um, uh, other countries for energy. Yes, and, got their own. and yeah, they're they're a full spectrum uh, energy and um, commodity superpower. I think we just we we're a little bit insular. If you read the, if you looked at the reports in the West, it's what we do to them. We're going to teach them a lesson. Yeah. Okay, yeah, but the there's deindustrialization happening now yeah. in uh, Europe's biggest economy in Germany. Without Russian gas, that's a very very severe adaptation for them. So I think I don't think Western leaders were honest about that from the start. Um, I also, I mean, I, 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 as I say, I think the Ukrainians are entirely, this is a, a war that's entirely justified for them. They should try and remove Russia entirely from their uh, territory. But, Mike, do you really believe they will? No. No. No, I don't think anybody does. No. Well, I think, well, some, some Western politicians have talked about total victory, which is, from an, in an ideal world, is, is, is ideal. Yes, you'd get Russia out of all of your territory, yeah. including Crimea. Who's going to make that happen? Well, they didn't I mean, make it happen in 2014, did they? No. So why would they suddenly make it happen in no, 2024? Most most wars... I was worried about, from the start, I was worried about partition, partly because um, partition historically is so common. I mean, people. it doesn't occur to people. Uh, you know, Ireland, <clears throat> um, Germany, Cyprus, mm. North Korea, Vietnam. Partition is actually very, very common. I, it's not desirable, it's not ideal. It would be a, a terrible event for, for Ukraine, but... You've got this boundary now, you, and and this. But it brings hostilities to an end. And, and <coughs> it does stop Hitchens killing people. Yeah, talks all the time about you know surely it's better to stop people killing each other, isn't it? Yeah, but there are there are there are just wars, Mike, as well. You know, that, so I, I I can see it from both sides. There, I think. I mean, I I, I I've never as a politician supported the uh, crazy interventions the West has done. I've been consistent I mean, I'm, not, I'm not changing my but it's mind it's not been that. terribly successful it's been di- absolutely disastrous the wars of intervention the wars of choice in Iraq mm. and Afghanistan it it, stri- it always struck me as insane trying to um, trying to impose sort of western democracy in a country like well it's such a tautology isn't it ridiculous how can you impose democracy by you force <coughs> <They> spent, <laughs> it doesn't work no and you spent 20 years doing it so I, you know I, I, my default position is you know uh, the the war that is totally justified as a war of self-defence, which which Ukraine is fighting. But I, I'm not going to kid myself that you can pretend that, that Russia is going to be beaten in this war um, militarily. I, I'm very sceptical about, yeah, about that. I think it may well be going on for quite some time. Uh, William, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Great. William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party. A bit of breaking news here. BP apparently is planning to invest up to 10 billion euros, they say today, in low-carbon fuels, renewables and e V, that's electric vehicle charging in Germany by the end of the decade. And we'll bring you more on that uh, as to why they're moving away from fossil fuels and more uh, into what they call renewable uh, stuff. Who knows if that's going to work? We shall see. Coming up, we're going to talk to Dr. Carol Sikora uh, about cancer, because once again, I'm afraid the striking doctors have stricken at the very heart of the health of this country uh, by cancelling, as a result of their strikes, 36,000 different procedures and operations that people suffering from cancer are not now going to be able to have. Brilliant. This is Talk TV. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, we're here, of course, all the way through until one o'clock when Ian Collins will be taking the reins of power uh, and lots more going on throughout the course of the day here. Uh, we've got Prime Minister's questions in the last hour of the show. Peter Cardwell will run his uh, eye over that to see what Mrs Starmer and Sunak come up with this week. Obviously, uh, there's so much to talk about, so many things uh, that should be happening which are not happening. One, Many of them, uh, you might say, in the NHS. I'm delighted to say we're joined now by Professor Carol Sikora. Carol, very nice Nice to see you. Welcome to uh, the Independent Republic in person. Um, not for the first time, but, but for the first time in a while. Um, we've got to talk about cancer, I'm afraid, again, because we've found out today NHS strikes have caused 36,000 cancer appointments and operations to be cancelled, according to some new data. Which, I mean, again, I just have to say, I don't understand doctors who want to go on strike. I really don't. I don't see their point. I don't, when I ever see them talking about it, they seem a little bit sort of a left wing, they seem driven by political um, motivation rather than anything else. I don't really buy this idea that they're trying to save the NHS by stopping working in it, you know? I think that's right. Uh, it's not just about money, it's about politics. And, you know, the thing that's terribly sad is, so far, most of the doctors, the nurses, both consultants and junior doctors, have been very responsible about what they've done. Yes. People aren't dying in the street after a road traffic accident. They're taken care of in the normal mm. way. There's no lives put at risk. The hidden stuff is this. If you cancel 36,000 cancer operations, if you cancel 418,000 appointments for follow-up, people will suffer. They won't know who it is, mm. of course. Not everyone's going to suffer, and that's the problem. But these are real people who have got real appointments and real problems and real health um, care issues. And it's not the common cold, you know, it's not just stay at home and, you know, don't go out for a while and take a COVID test. I mean, these are life and death decisions that they're making. Surely. Absolutely. And it's, you know, who knows who the people are? They've got nowhere else to go. It's a monopoly system. And that's the problem with the NHS. Yeah. It's very comfortable to manage because, quite frankly, I was once told by a manager uh, in a West London hospital where I was the director of cancer services. I was told, look, your service is too good. It's not we don't want it to be consumer friendly right. people too many people are coming it's costing too mm. much get rid of patients by being offensive to them yeah we I mean, were serious i mean i say this to people all the time when they go oh well of course you know the thing is the frontline people in the hospitals and in doctor surgeries you know they're they're doing the best that they can that's not my experience i see an awful lot of people um who, who talk to us here on a daily basis they've been treated badly by um, people inside hospitals, they've been, you know, people have been very rude to them, they've been sort of shoved around, they've had their, 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 their um, appointments moved, missed, whatever, you know, Kevin O'Sullivan himself been trying to get an, an appointment with his GP, uh, they offered him one in two weeks. He wanted to know if he could get something for his cough. You know, in two weeks he could be dead, uh, or better. And it's just not good enough. There's got to be better ways of doing things. But going back to the doctor's strike, I think there's fault on both sides. They've got to sit in a room, lock the door, come out with an agreement. Mm. Otherwise, you don't come out. Both sides. True. But I think the problem for us as, as ordinary members of the public and, and customers of the NHS, if you like, uh, the next strike is planned for three days, October the 2nd, the 3rd and the 4th, uh, which, of course, is the same week the Conservative Party conference is on. So, really, are you telling me that's not a coincidence, or is it a coincidence? But in the end, an awful lot of consultants, for example, and junior doctors tell me, well, we're not going on strike. So it's actually quite a small number of people who are doing it. 
there is a sort of feeling, and I certainly feel this, that one of the aims of the strike, other than wanting a ridiculous 35% increase mm. in pay, is to bring down the Tory government of and to show that they can't manage mm. the NHS, to make it as uncomfortable as possible. Right. And that, that's politics, it's not medicine. And I'm afraid, you know, if you're a consultant making 110000 a year, and I would say minimum on that, because that's what you make from the NHS. I don't think you're going to get much sympathy from people who are struggling by trying to get on with their lives, making sort of the average wage of somewhere approaching 27,000, 28,000. You're right. And I really don't know any of my personal friends who are consultants yeah. that are on strike. Um, people are very responsible on the whole. Mm. The nurses were extremely responsible. Um, for example, there was a sort of talk and threat in the papers that chemotherapy for cancer would be stopped because mm. it's given by nurses. That never happened. Yeah. People got it on time. So I think if you're going to be responsible, you've got to get back round the negotiating table quickly yeah. and stop these strikes. Yes, because it doesn't appear as though... They're very willing to listen from the government side, but it doesn't look as if the um, the BMA are all that willing to, to... I mean, they've sort of mentioned that they might not really actually expect 35%. Well, then why say it? Because it makes you look so out of, out of context and so sort of out of kilter with reality. They know they're never going to get anywhere near 35%. I mean, the nurses asked for 18 and settled for 5 uh, exactly. It's unrealistic. And, you know, today there's a meeting at number 10 uh, with health service managers to sort the winter problem. Yes. Well, September, that's the beginning of winter, right. isn't it? How, why is it today? Well, why wasn't it six months ago? I mean, why isn't it happening last winter when they knew that they were in another crisis? Because I said to Kevin laughingly this morning, I said, how do you know it's October? Because the Mirror and the Guardian talk about the health service being in crisis. They do it every year. It's they in do. crisis every year. And yet nothing changes. You know, I've been a doctor, Mike, for 50 years. Mm. Every year we have winter crisis talks, local level, senior yeah. level, number 10 even. Mm. What is a talk in number 10 going to do this morning to right. help? It's pretty obvious what the problem is. There isn't the capacity. There's too many old people with yeah. chronic morbidities that haven't a home to go to yeah. blocking the beds. And, and there's too many people in the health service, in, in my estimation, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, working part-time. I'm told there's an awful lot more GPs now who only do three days a week for one reason or another. They take another day to work in a clinic somewhere where they make a bit more money. Other times they're doing a different job. Um, you know, they're not all not working five-day weeks. They're just not working five-day weeks in the NHS. And if they could do that, we would solve an awful lot more of this waiting list problem. We would. But the future, I'm at a meeting today, the Royal Society of Medicine on Virtual Reality in right. Medicine. Fascinating. Wow. You could replace mm. a lot of this with virtual reality doctors. Okay virtual reality nurses, someone with a cough or a cold, they could be sorted out right. with an algorithm. Already we've got... So what, you could sort of literally put a pair of goggles on? Yeah. Could you be examined by some robot or other? That's the weakness. Right. But it could come. But you'd you be could be diagnosed. Have, you then. could have some sort of scan right. quickly. Uh, and increasingly... Medical students are very poor at examining patients because they just go straight yeah. to the CT scan right. uh, because everyone can have one. Right. We, my generation, we, we learned how to examine people very carefully and yes. properly. That's old-fashioned teaching now. Mm. Well, now you've got a phone where you can literally check your own pulse. You can get an app which more or less measures your blood pressure, I think. 
um, and it's all digitalized and you don't have to go anywhere. Yeah, I've got a watch that does blood pressure, yeah. does everything. Right. And it can be sent to a computer, sent to the hospital. Mm. Wearables are part of the future, part right. of this virtual reality future. But it seems to me the NHS is one of the last sort of doyens of, of move to, to, to digital technology. They still, you go to hospitals, they're still printing loads of stuff out. Everything's written on a piece of paper and put on a bulletin board. You know, they've got staff rotors which are being run and printed out on these old fashioned sort of, you know, printing machines, which you hear clattering away in the background. You're kind of going, what are you doing? No, and they use the Royal Mail. All communication to patients is through the Mm. post. Mm. Now the post, often they don't have the right address, the right postcode. It's it's Well, I've had, as you know, I mean, we talk about the NHS an awful lot on this show. We get people writing, uh, uh, sending us tweets and sending us messages saying, you know, I only got the letter today to tell me that my appointment was yesterday. You know, and they didn't know, so they so they missed so they missed it. And then another guy yesterday rang in. This I think breaks all known records. Um, he said he'd been waiting for a knee replacement. This is in Caerphilly in Wales, and we know Wales is even worse than England because yes. it's run by the Labour Party. Uh, fourteen years he's been waiting. <laughs> I mean, I literally fell off the chair. Fourteen years. At one point, they took him off the actual waiting list because they thought he was dead, um, and then they put him back on again when he informed them that he was still alive. And then he was supposed to have it this week, and guess what? It got cancelled. You know. What we saw during the pandemic was amazing with the vaccine programme. And I keep using this as a model of where the NHS really pulled together. They got smartphones to work. Mm. So you can find on your phone, if you've been vaccinated, the batch number of every vaccine you've had still. Now, that has not been transmitted to modern healthcare. Why? I just don't know. It can be done. Mm. Sure, it was done because it was needed urgently in private sector companies came in and did it for them but it was a tremendous achievement and we could do the same for cancer follow-up we could do the same for heart disease but it's not being done we just don't have the technology and do you think that's the fault of those who plan the future of the nhs i.e some of those who are going to be meeting with politicians today because i you know i don't defend politicians but i do say that these are the least likely people who can alter the way the nhs works you know they can give it the money they can afford uh, you know to pass the uh, you know the the buck if you like but the people running the NHS really should be the ones that answer for it, surely. They're not innovative. They're scared of Mm. the technology, they're scared of the future, and they're scared of the politics. All the time, the NHS becomes a political football. Labour, Conservative, bash it around, diversity, uh, opportunity, and so on. Let's just get a service that works. Net zero is another one. Budget airlines don't bother with that. They just get on and make it applicable to everybody. Keep the costs down, the service as good as possible, Mm. and you get going. With the NHS, we don't have that mentality. I know. Absolutely shocking. Great to see you, Professor. Thank you very much, Adina. You're going back to the conference, and uh, you may have to bring us some more news from that sooner rather than later. It could be that robots are the future in the NHS as well as they are elsewhere. Uh, Professor Carol Sikura, thank you very much indeed. Coming up, and we'll be talking some more about shoplifting. We'll be showing you more videos of what's going on in the shops up and down this country. And we'll be taking your calls, of course, as well, because we want to hear from you as to what you want us to tell everybody else. This is Talk TV. On DAB+, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is the place to be uh, for the truth, the whole truth and of course nothing but the truth. And also uh, we care what you think because what we want to do uh, is take what you say and augment it uh, and amplify it and give it a voice and tell the powers that be that this is what the people want, this is what the people demand, this is what the people are looking for. And right now uh, not very many of the people in this great country of ours are particularly happy uh, with what they are receiving. Uh, We've been talking in the first hour about the lawlessness 
virus that seems to be afflicting all of our shops up and down the country, not just in uh, the major cities, but all over the place as well. We had a call from Brighton uh, saying that it's an absolute nightmare down there. Uh, it's a nightmare everywhere because people simply don't believe the law is going to apply to them. They think they can run into any shop they like, uh, pinch a load of stuff and just run out. And by and large, most of the time, they get away with it. Coming up in this hour, though, we're talking about a great many other things as well, including the COVID disinformation unit. Believe it or not, that was something we all knew about at the time, um, run by Neil O'Brien, uh, who was one of, uh, uh, shall we say, Matt Hancock's assistants in the business of running the Department of Health. Um, it's still going, apparently. They're still taking names and keeping tabs on those people they think are putting out things that maybe they don't like. Alex Salmon's here with us as well in this hour, former First Minister of Scotland, leader of the Party. Just a bit of breaking news for you before that. Heathrow Terminal 4 has been evacuated apparently this morning over a security alert. Planes are being held up and the uh, station, the underground station, has been closed due to this ongoing security alert. Armed police are apparently at the scene, uh, but TFL, Transport for London, have said um, it is closed while they respond to a security alert. If you are trying to get to Terminal 4, it says tickets will be accepted on London buses via any reasonable route. The Metropolitan Police also uh, keeping an eye on that. We'll bring you any more updates on that as soon as we get them. David Davis joins us to talk about the COVID misinformation unit. We're also going to talk about punk rock later uh, and whether we're now entering a new age of punk because, quite frankly, people in the punk rock era were kind of basically rev revolting uh, against what was going on uh, in the mid to late 70s, 1976, 1977, if you're old enough to remember, was a time of sort of cultural revolution. It was before Margaret Thatcher got into power, but it was when Britain was basically on its backside to a large extent, thanks to too many years uh, of really rather turgid Labour government. And it was going nowhere. Uh, we had several winters of discontent, including some summers of discontent as well. Up in Scotland, Alex Salmon knows a thing or two about that, because uh, since he stopped running it, uh, it's all gone to rack and ruin, you'd have to say. Alex, a very good uh, morning to you. Good morning, mate. I mean, I, I harker back to the halcyon days of, uh, of when things were run properly uh, in this country. It seems a long time ago. Um, and in Scotland, uh, for you in particular, I presume it, it feels even longer. Well, I occasionally look at uh, <laughs> transport projects that ain't built, health services that don't run, uh, and economies that have now been crashed finally by the Bank of England. Uh, I mean, they've been at it for two years and they finally managed it. Uh, and think, you know, maybe we should get some of the adults back in the room somewhere sometime yes. uh, just to, to pull us out of the mess. Uh, however, obviously, today's news is fantastic. Uh, I've been researching all night, as you can see from my blog background, yes. which is funny after the night before. <laughs> uh, and I finally discovered that Jude Bellingham has a Scottish granny. Ah, that's so very good news. This is it's going to be convenient because our next game, the Scotland national team are playing in Madrid in the big league, the European uh, Championship. Uh, to get qualification, and Jude, of course, plays for Real Madrid, so he won't have to go far for the next game. Well, and of course, this, well, of course you, you would have to make, you'd have to convince him, though, wouldn't you? Well, there'll be no problem with that. We'll give him first-team football uh, every game, and uh, Jude will be right there. This is a long tradition of uh, of uh, signing up Anglo Scots. Uh, I mean, for example, we've signed up Harry Maguire, as is very clear from uh, recent events, <laughs> uh, and Jude will just be the the next long line of, of splendid players with Scottish ancestry who move into the national team. Well, I mean, uh, Kevin O'Sullivan this morning said it was a magnificent performance by England who scored all four goals. Harry Maguire's definitely the best of the lot. Yeah, I mean, ha Harry Maguire's an icon of the Tartan Army. I mean, I, I didn't get to Hamden last night or Hampden as the Channel 4 uh, announcers. No, <laughs> you're joking. 
Uh, but I didn't get to Hampton uh, last night uh, because I was still on my way back from Cyprus, uh, you know, celebrating the, the, the big match. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know about the wisdom of, of playing a, a friendly against England. I mean, you know, friendly against England is an oxymoron. It's like military intelligence. Yes. You, can't, you can either have a friendly or you can play England. You can't have both. Uh, and uh, I wasn't quite sure about the wisdom of uh, of uh, taking our team back from the heat of Cyprus to the heat of no. uh, Glasgow. No, uh, I mean it was a magnificent it was a magnificent sounding match, but it didn't quite live up to it on the on the pitch itself. But I was I was intrigued by, by something that was sent to me uh, the other day, in fact by my our good mutual friend Donald McLeod, um, who's got a picture of Harry Kane and a picture of Andrew Robertson, plays for Liverpool. Uh, standing next to him, and if you've seen this, one of these players has won the English title, the English FA Cup, the English League Cup, the English Community Shield, the Club World Cup, UEFA Super Cup, and UEFA Champions League. The other is in the uh, is in the England team. He's the captain. <laughs> <laughs> well, splendid stuff, and I was actually pleased that uh, Robertson had a hand in uh, Harry Maguire's goal. Uh, on the basis he was redeeming himself from a very unusual uh, slip up from the Scotland captain, so that that was one good thing that uh, yeah. That, that now, now you've been complaining recently, though, that Channel 4's purchase of uh, of, the, of the England games has had a bit of a knock-on effect in Scotland because um, apparently you can't watch the Scotland games free to air, right? Well, that's right, and I mean they're owned by Viaplay; they've got the rights. Now, Viaplay is a Swedish company, a big European broadcasting company. Uh, I mean, they've just announced they're evacuating the, the UK. Well, <laughs> hardly surprising. Many other companies are doing that as well. But they're, they're, they're selling up in the UK, but they've still got the rights to the, the Scotland matches. And Channel 4, who, of course, as a public service broadcaster, stepped in to get the rights to the English games. And Channel 4 Wales, as a public sector broadcaster, stepped in to get the rights to the, the Welsh games. But there's no sign whatsoever of Channel 4 stepping in to public service broadcast the rights to the, the Scotland games. Mind you, given the the, the uh, quality of their uh, pre-match broadcast <laughs> last night, quite frankly, <laughs> I'm not sure we should be, should be careful of no. what we wish. But there's no. a serious point, of course. You know, if public service broadcasters like Channel 4, like the BBC, who get public money, don't sort of recognise that there's a bit of an anomaly here where Scotland fans and only Scotland fans <clears throat> have to pay to see uh, our matches live, uh, don't they sort of recognise that there might be a failing of public duty? I mean, what's the point of having public sector broadcasts yes. if you don't broadcast well, the public? Well, I mean, my view would be that public sector broadcast companies should not be uh, given the money by the taxpayers to actually spend on, on commercial football matches. They shouldn't even be bidding for them at all. But if they are going to bid, then I would suggest that at least one of the conditions ought to be that the broadcast is, 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 is countrywide. And by that, I mean United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland with all of its different small parts of the jigsaw. Well, I mean, we're talking about you know, military intelligence. It's <laughs> being an oxymoron or a Scotland, England yes. friendly. I mean, BBC Scotland, now that's another oxymoron. <laughs> the BBC regards itself as an outpost of the uh, imperial realm in Scotland. I was interested in Stella. It didn't seem like that when I was there. You know, but, but Harry, Harry Maguire was uh, cheered to the echo, of course, uh, as you would expect. Yeah. Uh, but the, the, the president of FIFA didn't get a good time, uh, and neither did, the, uh, neither did God Save the King. <laughs> Uh, I noticed some blowback uh, from uh, various parties saying how disgraceful it is for the, the British national anthem to be booed. Well, there's two things about it. You know, it, it was being used as the English national anthem. Yes. 
Uh, and of course, it ain't even a British national anthem. In, in history, of course, it's a German national anthem. They've got more claim to it than Britain has. Well, you might, you might have, you might find an argument on that one. But I would agree with you that in, in sporting matters, it would be more sensible for the England team to have a different national anthem than the British national anthem. I disagree with you about it being German. It is the British national anthem. Well, we'll come to that in a second. Jerusalem, which I know you sing every Sunday enthusiastically in your local parish cup down in the east of England somewhere. But that's singing for England at the Commonwealth Games and gets a rousing reception. People even whistle during it to try to join in because they can't remember the words. But nonetheless... That would be a proper English national anthem. Mm. But on God Save the King, of course, it, it was composed to help George II, who, as I remember, was a wee German Geordie. He was a German king, composed by panicky Hanoverians as Bonnie Prince Charlie advanced through Derby. And, of course, there is the verse that uh, royal circles and establishment circles in London don't like to talk anymore about anymore, like God Save Marshall Wade, rebellious Scots to crush. Yes. So you have in the verse of the so-called national anthem the idea of crushing Scots, that you shouldn't be uh, you shouldn't be too surprised if a, a few rebellious Scots decide to do yeah. it when it's But this has always been the problem with Scotland. There's too many rebellious Scots, you see, you know, and if they're just a bit, 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 bit more compl compliant with the general view that the United Kingdom is better together, then there'd be no need for that sort of talk, would there? Well, you can see I'm bloodied and unbowed. I have my saltire tie on, despite the amazing performance, that has to be said, of Jude Bellingham yes. last night. Yes. How that tie isn't in every English side. Well, I know. I know. Well, this is the thing. I mean, normally at these at these moments, we can sort of take solace with the Scottish rugby team at the World Cup, but I'm afraid they got horsed as well uh, by South Africa. Um, but I'm still I'm still rooting for them as best I can. Yeah, well, these stories come on. We're only we're only halfway through these uh, these tragedies. They can easily turn into triumph. And of course, uh, the, let's remember. I mean, let's get things into perspective. Uh, the, the Scotland national side are well in the way at qualification for Germany next year. They're in Category A, incidentally, of the European Nations League. Uh, England uh, were relegated, of course. And, of course, that's one of the difficulties about that game last night. Because when teams from superior leagues, the Category A, take on teams from lower leagues, the Category B in England, then the, the, the underdogs, that's England in this case, often try a lot harder because the game means a lot more to them. That was one of the dangers that they... <laughs> SFA should have seen in the game last night. And incidentally, the SFA, apart from uh, last night's game, which was really stupid of them to put on, uh, and also quarrelling with the Scottish women's team, which is even more stupid. Right. But that apart, the Scottish Football Association have been paying a bit of a blinder uh, over the last couple of years. So, I mean, you know, it was true, though, that in the one World Cup, which almost every country in the world qualified for, Scotland didn't. And I'm refusing to take the line from some who say that it was obviously why the reason they didn't want to qualify for the World Cup in Qatar was because there was no drink. And they didn't want to be the, only, the only World right. Cup they've been to where you couldn't have a beer. You're, you're, you're missing the only, the only statistic which really matters about World Cups, and that is that in 1974, the last major, you know, the last World Cup in, uh, in Germany in 1974, uh, the only international side ever to go through a World Cup unbeaten uh, and, and yet not win it were Scotland. Even Germany, who won it, were beaten in the, in the initial stages. Yeah. But, but you Scotland see, managed but to this is, this is where, unbeaten and got knocked out. But Alex, this is where it proves you can't use political terms like winning and losing for sport. 
because, you know, you can claim that you've had a victory in politics without winning anything, but you can't do it in football because, you know, it doesn't mean anything. Nobody believes you. Well, because Alifa is still waiting for our first victory in politics, so that'll be, that'll be coming along any time soon. Well, I mean, mean, meanwhile, old uh, Humsey Useless, as we like to call him here, has been slicing and dicing his own party, hasn't he? Well, yeah, I mean, he, he's got this kind of thing. I mean, uh, I'm trying to be as sympathetic as possible, but I can see know, that. He's already chopped uh, Angus Brennan McNeil, who's an absolutely outstanding member of parliament. Uh, you know, he's been MP for since 2005 for the Western Isles. Nihil in year, as, as you pronounce it, uh, uh, of course. Right. Indeed. Uh, and, you know, he's a character uh, and he's, you know, well-loved of his constituents uh, and he's a, a fearless advocate of, of Scottish independence uh, as well he as... He is being, actually one of the... I think he is one of the good guys. Yeah, one of a fluent Gaelic speaker and a genuine crofter, incidentally. I mean, the, you know, the first genuine crofter in the House of Commons uh, for about 100 years. Right. Uh, you know, he's a, a really great guy to have on your side, but he's got the chop already. Uh, I think he's too fervent in his advocacy of independence, and he wouldn't shut up about the, the mess that the Scottish government were making about ferries in his constituency mm. and, and bearing down on the fishing community as well. Uh, so he's got chop. Uh, and now they're lining up another, I mean, a legendary name in Scottish nationalist politics, uh, Fergus Ewing, the, the son of the yes. great Winnie Ewing, who, who died sadly recently. He's been lined up to be disciplined this week. And, I mean, look, I spent 20 years uh, as leader of the Scottish National Party. I mean, most people say it's a reasonably successful two decades. You know, we started with four MPs and ended up uh, with over 100, if you count the Scottish Parliament and the Westminster Parliament. So it was a pretty successful time over a, a period of years. In my entire 20 years, I suspended one member of parliament from the party and he was convicted of assault in a criminal court. <laughs> uh, so, you know, to get to you know two in, the, in a matter of months, which is what Humza's uh, track record is at the present moment, I mean, you've got all these idiots around you and Humza's got one or two idiots around him who tell you, look, you've got to be strong, you've got to be tough, you can't let them get away with it. I mean, you know, the real readership, you don't mind if people step out of line or have got something to say or are characters or defend their constituents, as Fergus Ewing and Angus McNeil most certainly do. I mean, that adds up to the respect in which the party is held. You don't even, the idea of how, I mean, the only conformity and silence you really get is in a graveyard. Mm. Uh, and exactly, that's where the SMP will be heading if they, they don't stop, yeah. don't stop stopping the, uh, the good uh, nationalists from their party. Well, uh, they should be welcoming dissent, welcoming ideas coming forward. Uh, and real leaders, strong leaders, don't, are not frightened of that. Only weak leaders are. Yes. And of course, the other time you get a complete and utter silence is when you ask them any questions about uh, the current police investigation, which, of course, brings me to asking you about it. I know uh, you're probably going to say you can't comment on an ongoing police investigation, but I feel as if I need to ask you what's happening with the ongoing police investigation. Well, I can comment on it. It's just that you're not able to say very much uh, <laughs> in proper terms. But I mean, you know, I still think just let the police do their job, let them get on with it, uh, and let them come to a conclusion, uh, and stop trying to, to second guess them. Uh, I think clearly they've got a, a range of things to investigate, so we should just let them get on yeah, with the job. But it's not an open-ended. It's not an open-ended contract. I think they need to start giving us some kind of timetable of events and whether or not, by a certain stage of the year, they're going to come out and say, actually say something. Well, I, I'm not saying that the, the police work in that uh, terms. I mean, you know, there's been some suggestion that the Crown Office have become uh, 
political. I mean, in fact, I made it <laughs> over the the last few years, and uh, and let's hope that's being eradicated from the crown office uh, with the departure of the the crown agent last uh, last year. I mean, he was a a person who uh, unfortunately seemed to be influenced by politics. But but uh, but the the police, you know, by and large uh, in Scotland, have been regarded as uh, above and beyond political influence, and that's a good thing. And if you've got a police force which is above and beyond political influence, then you should just let them get on with the job in their own timetable, and they'll be methodically working their way through a case. And they won't be influenced even by uh, t- uh, the Independent Republic of, uh, of Mike Graham. They'll be well, they'll be influenced and go where the evidence leads them, and that's how it should be. Indeed. Well, we'll see about that. But listen, Alex, good to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Alex Simon, former First Minister of Scotland, leader of the Aleppo Party, of course, as well, uh, slightly nursing his wounds after the England defeat of Scotland last night at Hampden. 3-1. All goals scored, of course, by England. Coming up, we'll take some more calls. We'll talk some more about shoplifting. Uh, and, of course, we'll be talking as well um, about uh, the misinformation or the disinformation unit uh, that the government is still running, keeping tabs on those of us who they don't like. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've been talking about a great many things this morning, uh, including, of course, the news that 36,000 operations and procedures for cancer patients have had to be shelved as a result uh, of the striking doctors. And they've got more strikes coming up during Tory party conference. Brad in Cambridge says, are these the same striking consultants that we are supposed to have sympathy with that have been sexually assaulting their colleagues? Disgusting people. Well, I think um, you can't say that for sure, but certainly the story yesterday, the, 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 the survey that we had yesterday, that 91% of women working in the NHS in the consultancy and doctor area say that they've witnessed some kind of um, sexual misconduct. Extraordinary stuff. But let's talk to David Davis now, Conservative MP uh, for Halton Price and Howden, of course, a man uh, that uh, we got to know over the course of the summer uh, up in uh, Edinburgh with uh, Alex Salmond and the incredible uh, show that was going on there. Now, coming up, uh, we're going to be talking about the COVID disinformation unit, because quite frankly, I didn't even know it was still going. David, very good uh, morning to you. Yeah, good morning. Yeah, thanks nice very much. To see you again. Nice to see you again. Yeah, and in in, in uh, more professional circumstances, you might say, <laughs> since the last time. I must admit, when I saw this piece of the Telegraph, I had no idea that disinformation unit was still going. I thought that it was very much a kind of COVID-inspired um, sort of idea that came out of Matt Hancock's brain uh, and was operated by Neil O'Brien. But it seems as though it's a much more pervasive problem than that. Uh, it came out of a bigger space than Matt Hancock's brain. It, uh, <laughs> it, orig- it originated um, actually in 2019 mm. when they, I think with reason, uh, were worried about foreign interference in our elections. So you know, that, there, there was a, a good reason to have a, a, a unit that watched what was going on. But when COVID came along, the, uh, the government were... Well, they basically wanted the public all to think the same as they did. Mm. That's put it crudely, you yeah. know. So when it came to vaccines, they wanted us just to swallow the entire line that vaccines should be for everybody, that everybody should have one. There shouldn't be any choice. You know, that we should have passports to show we'd had vaccines, all those sorts of things. Uh, when it came to the treatment, whether it's wearing masks or lockdown, we all had to believe the government's line, even though even now, years later we still don't know what worked and what didn't work you know and there's some good argument that uh, from sweden for example that lockdown didn't work so those were the sorts of things they were trying to control and when people like myself and, and many others um uh said for example i didn't like the idea of vaccine passports i mean we're a free country why should we carry these things i got cancelled uh on youtube 
um, when uh, quite eminent scientists were um, saying things about maybe the viability of giving vaccines to children, whether that's risky, too risky or not. Mm. Uh, you know, they, they, these characters are then sort of within an hour calling up the platforms and saying, uh, you know, you, you perhaps shouldn't be carrying this or you should uh, uh, organise your algorithm so nobody sees it. Those sorts of things. Well, you know, that's not what should happen in a democracy. No. You know, yeah, this is democracy. You get truth by challenge. I mean, your whole program is based on the idea of challenging the the existing. Um, Absolutely, and I was never sure if my name was on the list, but I know Julie Hartley Brewer's name was on the list, and she was quite, yeah, uh, yeah. quite rightly, absolutely outraged by that idea. And in fact, Neil I O'Brien think he probably had a blacklist to go with it. So. <laughs> yeah, well, Neil <laughs> O'Brien gave an interview to the Sunday Times, kind of boasting about the fact that he was keeping his eyes on some journalists who were actually, you know, deviating yeah. from the chosen path of government yeah. policy, which is yeah. an extraordinary place for the British Parliament to be in, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And and uh, I mean, it's bad in any event, but it's particularly bad when, you know, you've got these massive areas of public policy where uh, mistakes cost lives. Yeah. I mean, it's simple as that. Mistakes cost lives. And we know the government made loads of mistakes. I mean, I don't particularly criticise them for that. A brand new problem, very, very difficult to deal with, lots of uncertainty. But that's precisely the time you don't lock down right. uh, people's opinions. I mean, it, it, it also comes from a very weird idea about science. I mean, most of the people who do this are not scientists at all. I'd certainly put my scientific uh, qualifications up against the likes of Matt Hancock yeah. or indeed most ministers. Right. Um, or, indeed, uh, or indeed some of these behavioural scientists from Imperial College who are no more scientists really than sociologists. Well, no, I mean, the very first thing I was picked up on was I wrote an article with uh, Matt Ridley, who's a who's a, yeah. a, a law, was in the House of Lords and he's a scientist as well by training. Uh, was this Imperial College model that Neil Ferguson had created? Yeah. And he created it over thirteen years, and it had never been right. right. Now I've written dozens of mathematical models in my career. I used to use them uh, in business, um, but you know they've got real weaknesses, and you've got to be very, very careful about how you use them. And here's one: you know, it was overestimating death rates from previous illness and from previous uh, epidemics um, by tens, hundreds, thousands, even millions of times. Yeah. Uh, and he, it was his model that we were relying on for for really really major uh, uh, policy decisions which was mad so i criticized it i said you know it's not been written properly it's not been documented properly nobody's ch checked it or tested it it's got a very bad empirical history very bad history of making mistakes uh, and and for that reason i was put on the uh uh, disinformation uh, no list. Step. I, should, I think I should have got a medal for it, frankly, because it turned out I was right and he was wrong. Well, exactly right. I mean, all the people on it should get a medal because, uh, I mean, it's a bit like uh, when I, I now see people who go wandering about uh, wearing masks because they think it's going to protect them from something. And you go, well, that's fine because it's identifying you. Unless we know that you've got some kind of vulnerability, you know, there's not actually going to be anything much that it's going to help you with. But so what are they doing now, this, this disinformation unit? And what are they collecting information on? Well, well, the truth is we don't know. Right. I mean, what we do know is it still exists. Um, there was a rumour around, and I, I don't want to put her in trouble, but Michelle Donnellan, who's the, who's the cabinet minister who's responsible for this, actually has got quite good instincts. I mean, she was the one who effectively took out the legal but harmful element of the online safety bill. Remember the controversy yes. of that? Yeah. Uh, and, she, and she corrected that. So I think she's got pretty good instincts, actually. Uh, and I hear rumours 
that she herself wanted to shut this operation down and was stopped from doing mm. so. Um, so uh, but that's the right thing to do. I mean, there, and bear in mind, the CDU in her department, there's also something equivalent to the MOD and something equivalent to the Cabinet Office. So it, it's not just a one departmental thing. Um, and uh, But it's obviously still there. Uh, the government hates to give up powers and control whenever mm. whenever it, 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 it doesn't have to. Uh, and my view is we should shut them down. We should shut all of them down and then start again from scratch. And if you want protection from, uh, let's say, Russian or Chinese interference, and today, of course, front line of the front page of some newspapers is Chinese interference in, in Tory candidate selection. Um, if you want to deal with that, then deal with it publicly, openly, put a committee of the house of commons in charge of it not a minister mm. hidden away in whitehall uh, and do it properly uh, but don't allow it to be used as really a sort of orwellian uh, attempt to control members of parliament very very senior and well-informed uh, scientists uh, people are taking part in a public debate with the aim of trying to improve uh, public policy and public understanding. You don't try and, you know, th in our country is famous for its freedoms. It's famous for its free speech. It's famous for its institutions. This is a corrosion of all those things and should go. And should those people who have had information on them held by this unit uh, be, al be allowed to see what it is, what it is that people have been holding on them? Yeah, yes, and, and broadly you can. I mean, if you if you suspect it, you can put in what's called a subject access request, which right. is what I did. I mean, this came into the public domain because we were getting a bit suspicious about behaviour patterns. I mean, what happened in the first instance was I, I was making a speech at Tory party conference saying, I don't like the idea of vaccine ID cards. You know, um, if I have a vaccination, that's my business. Right. Uh, I shouldn't have to carry a card around. I hate ID cards anyway. It's right. sort of... Uh, continental idea that's never been appropriate in this country, and um, uh, and I was and I got shut down, albeit quite for quite a brief period by YouTube. They just cancelled me completely when they discovered who who they cancelled. I think they had a sort of panic attack and right. back up again quickly. Right. But but the but the um, uh, and that started as being suspicious. So I put in a subject access request and got the information that's now in the public domain. And then Caroline Lucas did the same and various, various of my colleagues did, uh, some who were not in the public domain, but one or two ministers actually uh, were, were, were in it as well. Uh, and that's how we found it. So if you think you have been um, surveilled by these people, you mm. can put in a subject access request and they will tell you, you'll get a redacted thing back. They won't necessarily know exactly what they've done, but they, you'll at least know if you've been, uh, as it were, in their attention. In the, in, you know, um, And... You know, if anybody thinks that, I, I would recommend to do it. You yeah, know, I think. Well, I may do it just as a matter of interest. Um, yeah. Because, you know, yeah. You know, and Christ, they'll, probably take, they'll probably take two years to send you back great fat files. Well, that is the thing. I mean, this is what I say. This is only in Parliament and only in the civil service do you get the answer when you ask the question, how soon can I have that? They give you the answer in years as opposed to in sort of days and or That's weeks, right. you know. That's right. That's Incredible. Right. But, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure you'll find your 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 listed somewhere. <laughs> I certainly I hope so. If I were you, I'd be very disappointed. I would, yeah, absolutely. I'd be extremely yeah. disappointed if there was not a file. As I used to believe, uh, there was often a file on me in the FBI somewhere in America because I got a White House press pass once. I'm pretty sure they must have delved yeah. around in my murky background before they gave me one of those. But there yeah. we are. Uh, David, good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, we must get together again soon. David Davies, Conservative MP uh, for Howden and Holton Price, of course. And the COVID disinformation unit, which is still going and is still collecting information on people, uh, without their knowledge, effectively.
extraordinary stuff. Needs to stop, doesn't it? This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.